According to the legend of the three clerics, in the third century, a wealthy and generous Turkish bishop was having a beer at an inn when he became suspicious of the innkeeper. After investigating his suspicions, he discovered the bodies of three young church scholars who had been murdered by the innkeeper and placed in barrels of brine. Invoking God's help, the bishop brought the boys back to life, a resurrection. From this miracle, the bishop, St. Nicholas, who inspired the Santa Claus tradition, was eventually canonized as the patron saint of brewing. For centuries, beer and brewing have been an integral part of the Orthodox Christian tradition. Beer was inexpensive. In many instances, it was safer to drink than water. And importantly for monks and other Christians, it could be consumed and provide nourishment without being considered breaking fast. Given these benefits, and in order to maintain financial self-sufficiency, monks would brew beer in their monasteries, not just for themselves, but also to sell. Brewing beer became an important part of monastic life. One such group of monks is called St. Paul's Foundation in the Shrine of St. Nicholas the Wonderworker, patron of sailors, brewers, and repentant thieves. St. Paul's, located in Marblehead, Mass., owes its tradition to St. Paul the Apostle, St. Nicholas, of course, and to an early monastery located on Mount Athos in Greece. Consistent with its long-standing brewing traditions, St. Paul sought to construct a new facility in Marblehead, which would include a chapel, a brewery, and also a banquet hall known as a fellowship hall, where the monks would serve their beer. In order to construct these facilities, the monks were required to demonstrate that their building plans were consistent with Marblehead zoning laws in order to obtain a building permit, a precondition to any construction of this type in Massachusetts. Following the initial granting of the building permit, St. Paul's attempted to revise the plans and the permit was suspended. A dispute arose with the town of Marblehead Building Department and ultimately, even after St. Paul's agreed to construct the facilities according to the previously approved building plans, Marblehead refused to reinstate the permit. St. Paul's filed suit in federal court, alleging that Marblehead's refusal to reinstate the building permit violated the Religious Land Use and Institutionalized Persons Act. The act prohibits local governments from, quote, imposing or implementing a land use regulation in a manner that imposes a substantial burden on the religious exercise of a person, including a religious assembly or institution. On cross motions for summary judgment, a pretrial maneuver to decide a case on the merits, the trial court sided with the town. St. Paul's appealed to the First Circuit Court of Appeals. Would the monk's prayers be answered, or would the case continue to be forsaken on appeal? This is St. Paul's Foundation versus Marblehead. Welcome to Legal Judgments, where we tackle litigation and trial strategy by analyzing and talking about real legal cases. 
I'm Bob Stetson, a Boston-based trial lawyer at Bernkoff, one of Boston's oldest and most respected firms. Today, we're discussing a case at the intersection of land use and free exercise rights. With me to help us understand the issues and strategies is Greg Pagnini, an attorney and partner at Brody, Hardoon, Perkins, and Keston in Boston. He represented Marblehead in this case. Welcome, Greg. Thanks for joining. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Unlike the three clerics in the St. Nick story, Greg, St. Paul's case against Marblehead was not resurrected on appeal. The court held that Marblehead's refusal to reinstate the building permit was permissible and that it did not violate the Religious Land Use Act. In arriving at that conclusion, the court examined a number of factors which are commonly considered in these types of cases. One, whether the regulation targets a religion or religious practice. Two, whether the regulation, while perhaps neutral on its face, has the effect of burdening a religion or its practice. Or three, whether the regulation was imposed arbitrarily or capriciously on a religious group or practice. Now, the St. Paul's appeal focused on the third factor, whether Marble had acted arbitrarily or capriciously. And the court said that it did not. But I imagine there's a lot of factual detail here that was not touched upon in the decision. Because, you know, there was some, in my words, not the court, some mixed messaging coming from St. Paul's on whether they were going to abide by the initial building plans or whether they were going to be pursuing these new plans. And so given that mixed messaging, the basic gist, and again, these are my words, not the courts, but the basic gist of the court's reasoning is, what's a building inspector supposed to do? Given the circumstances, he seems to have been acting in good faith. Now, that may be right, or wrong as a factual matter. But this case was decided on summary judgment, which means that there are no facts in dispute and the case can be decided as a matter of law. Here, it seems like at least the shrine felt that Marblehead wasn't acting in good faith. And so I'm assuming that perhaps there was some suggestion or at least some inferences from some facts in the record that would support that conclusion. So if I'm correct in my suspicion, what were those facts? What were those inferences? And why were those ultimately insufficient to defeat summary judgment? Good question. And I think your suspicion is correct at the outset that St. Paul's did feel that the town was acting, I think probably you know, with some sort of animus towards the church or the protos, Father Andrew. That, I think, is essentially their position, that the problem for them was that there was no evidence of that. The sort of beginning and end of the case really was all about the fairly sort of strict and by-the-book reading of the building code and the mass zoning law. There was a lot of factual detail that both the federal court and appeals court chose not to wade into when they did their decisions. But suffice it to say that there was a lot of instances of the church not following what the town was asking them to do. And they would then turn around and say, well, we're not doing it because of X, Y, or Z that 
you're making us do which is unfair. And that was the beginning of the conflict between the church and the town. Both of the decisions, however, talked about a series of instances where it was, as a matter of a factual record, clear that the church hadn't been doing very simple things that the town had asked. So, for example, and to just talk a little bit about the facts without getting too much into the chronology, after the church secured a building permit, and as a side note, once you get a building permit, you have to build just to what is in that permit and what's in the plans. And that was one of the core issues in the case. The chapel started, or the shrine rather, started serving beer. And that was really, I think, the thing that Father Andrew and the shrine wanted to do the most. It was clear that Father Andrew, both a bright person and also an entrepreneur, was using this as a way to evangelize, which was great, but also to, to get the shrine out into the community, market it, for lack of a better way of putting it. And I think he just enjoyed beer. Certainly nothing wrong with that. But over the fall of the year in which they got the building permit in July, they were issued a series of violation notices for serving beer to the public without first having an occupancy permit. And not once, not twice, not three times did they get a violation notice without doing anything. Um, That in turn caused them to have to go before what's called the Building Code of Appeals Board and to appeal that violation notice. And that was the first instance where the shrine made a case that they were effectively being discriminated against. And one of the key pieces of evidence in the case, in my view, was a decision from the BCAB that said, we've heard everything that you've said about the reasons why you were serving beer, et cetera, et cetera. And there's nothing in here that we can see as evidence that you're being discriminated against. It's the town following the book. But the, and that, that put, I think, the shrine in a position where, okay, now we can't serve beer until we get an occupancy permit. And that was the reason why they were seeking to get, at the end of the year, some sort of full occupancy so they could continue to serve beer. Just to tell the story, I guess, of what happened a little bit more, there was a meeting between the Shrine's architects and the town that resulted in the architects not being able to get what the Shrine wanted in terms of occupancy. The architect then effectively quit on the shrine. And that's what suspended the building permit because you need to have an architect of record in order to be operating under a building permit. And that was what became the case, whether or not and under what circumstances this building permit should be reinstated. And the shrine was saying that, well, look, even though we don't have an architect, we're going to get a new architect. And that new architect is saying that we can still effectively build to the same requirements under the original plans, although it's going to be a different use designation that was in the original plans. And we want to just have the building permit back so we can do that. And the issue became, well, wait a minute, you are giving, and it's actually the same phrase that I used in a lot of the briefing, mixed messages on what it is you're going to be building. Are you going to be building to the exact specific plans that led to the original building permit? Or are you going to be building to those plans absent one or more fixtures that are in there, i.e. a bathroom, a handicap ramp, et cetera. And more to the point, what is the use designation under the building code of the three areas of the shrine? There were three different parts of the project, basically, that were going to be built in tandem. One was the brewery, another was a chapel, 
And then the third, which was really the one at most at issue was what was called the fellowship hall, where they were going to be serving beer, did serve beer to evangelize to the public. And the issue effectively was, well, even if we assume that you're going to be building to the exact same fixtures that were outlined in the building permit, which in my view was not clear at all, is it enough? And I think this is what the appeals court really weighed for the building inspector to say, look, the building, I'm sorry, the building permit said you have use, one use designation and you're looking for a second and you have to get a different building permit in order to do that. And the court ultimately held that's entirely reasonable. It's not arbitrary and capricious for the building inspector to have said you need to build by the exact specifications and requirements that the original building permit called for. So in that sense, it was fairly cut and dry. But you're exactly right that there was a lot of background color in the case in terms of the the shrine alleging that they were effectively being treated unfairly. And that's the analysis under the law, I think, as the appeals court had written. There's basically what you look at is whether or not they were being, quote unquote, jerked around. And there simply was just no evidence of that whatsoever. And I think as the appeals court correctly also held, you know, if anything, and went the other way, that it was the shrine that was really trying to, again, using their term, bait and switch the town saying, well, we're going to try to build the one thing, but at the same time, we're doing another. So that was, I think, entirely correct, the way that the appeals court outlined the facts and understood the case in terms of what it was. So I want to follow up on that history, the exchanges between the town and I've been calling St. Paul's, but you call it the shrine, so I'll call it the shrine. Between the town and, and the shrine, because when, just from as a neutral observer here, having read through the case, you look at it, and at least from what I read out of the First Circuit's decision, the town was really looking for assurances. Assure me, shrine, that you're going to build in accordance with the building permits, that you're going to abide by the use designation specified in those permits, specified under our zoning laws, provide us with those assurances, and we can all move on with our lives. You can build your building, and you can brew your beer, and you can serve it to the public. We all go on our merry way. But that's not what happened. And, you know, what happened is you've got the shrine, they've got you know, some of the most expensive attorneys in the entire country working on this for them. You know, you've got a federal lawsuit. You've got a, an appeal that goes the distance here. And so I guess my question is, where did this break down so irretrievably, I guess, is the word where these assurances that the town was so desperately seeking either didn't come or they came at a time when the relationship had gone so south that, you know, settlement was off the table. What kind of, can you explain kind of the background on that? Yeah, there, so there was prior to, well, at least I should say at or about the time that the federal case was filed, there was discussion of well, what's the problem here? you know, that, that sort of thing. And I think it quickly became evident that there was an evolution in terms of what evolution is probably not the right word, but there was at different points in time, differing 
viewpoints on what it was that the shrine exactly wanted to do with the project. And it was a little bit of kind of a -a whack-a-mole where, you know, the town was trying to, in one sense, of course, assist the shrine through the process. And you saw in the case, there's a lot of uh, documentation from the building commissioner's office where he's reaching out and saying, I, you know, I want to help you. This brewery idea is great. Here's the process, et cetera, et cetera. But as it unfolded, the shrine was not complying with some of very simple requests. For example, the service of beer that I had cited before without the occupancy. I think there was also cited in in both of the decisions, the First Circuit and the Federal Court on Summary Judgment, that for whatever reason, although he had been told a number of times that you can't sign for the building permit if the architects are as the owner and Father Andrew did that nonetheless. Little things like that where it seemed like they were just skirting the process. So I think that put the town on a little bit of alert that, wait a minute, something is going on here where they're not willing to follow the process. And it came to a head at the end of that year where Um, Leaving aside any dispute between the town and the shrine, it was also very clear through discovery in the case that the shrine and its own architects were having a a number of issues, not being able to see eye to eye on exactly what had to be done, um, which for me was actually very good evidence in the case because it was showing that it was not the town. This was something that internally within the shrine and its own agents, they we're having a hard time figuring out what direction they wanted to take this project in. And so that was the real time, or that was about the time where I think there was, to use a religious term, the great schism, you know, <laughs> and things really kind of went two different ways. And it was really hard at that point to kind of figure out a resolution. What, at least from the town's perspective, what kind of brought it home to them. And this was pointed out in both decisions, especially the First Circuit decision, after the shrine got another architect. They went before the BCAB again. Um, This was now because of their appeal of the suspension of the permit. And it was only then, after months and months, i.e. the time from when their architect first left in around January, I think of 2019, up until the summer when we had a hearing at the BCAB, that they said really for the first time to the BCAB in unmistakable language, we will now build to the original permit. And that was the first time they had said that um, at any point from around there to, you know, from the preceding kind of dispute as to well, what is it you're building and what's the use and what's the occupancy. And once I think the parties understood that, the town said, hey, no problem. Now that we know that's what you're going to be building to, that's fine. There were other conditions that the court had pointed out, but those are normal conditions for the town. But it was, that was the nature of the mixed messaging kind of, which felt like a shell game, you know, from about the time that the shrine obtained the permit originally up until a year later when they went in front of the BCAB that second time and said, okay, look, we'll build the original permit. And I don't know if that's because they finally decided on their ends, look, whatever it is that we wanted to do, it's just easier to go back and now build the original permit and figure this out. I'm not sure, but that became the, you know, the scope of the dispute at that point. Well, okay, was it unreasonable for the town not to have issued the permit in that period of time from when it was recently suspended to basically when it was effectively reinstated by the BCAB at that hearing. I don't know that there really was any one point, I suppose, to your question painted, I suppose, at the end of the year. And that meeting was really the, where it became clear that at least on the shrine side, they weren't going to 
be able to figure out a way to make this work. But it, it was more of a slowly progressing situation where it just seemed like things were getting further and further apart as opposed to closer and closer together. I know there's a terrific court-sponsored mediation program over in the federal court. Was that attempted at all in this case? No, it was not. It was not. There was dialogue between the parties. We didn't do a mediation. I think it just became clear fairly early on that this was, we were going to have to litigate it and see what happened in terms of a court ruling. So, but getting back to the decision, you know, the court has this lengthy, kind of interesting footnote in which it specifically identifies that the shrine did not challenge Marblehead's decision on the basis of the second factor. You know, we went through the three factors a few minutes ago about how to analyze a religious land use act claim. And the second factor is that the regulation at issue, you know, while it may appear facially neutral, it had the effect of substantially burdening a religious practice or activity. And the, you know, typically you'll see a lot of cases, certainly, kind of like a kitchen sink approach to claims, complaint, even appeals. And, you know, it wouldn't have surprised me to see that type of a claim would be made by the shrine here and pursued on appeal. And I think even it, it may have surprised the First Circuit that that it hadn't been made or at least raised, you know, in, in the context of the litigation. Can you tell us why, in your opinion, or maybe how that issue was resolved or why it may have been discarded earlier in the litigation or not brought at all? I mean, from your perspective. Yeah, the, it, it wasn't brought at all. The original complaint only pled the arbitrary and capricious prong of the analysis. Why? I don't know. I can only speculate that it was a strategical decision on the shrine's part. And maybe that's because they thought that it was an easier standard to be able to prove that the decision was arbitrary as opposed to building a record of demonstrating that there was some kind of animus or suggesting it towards the shrine. Or I suppose the other alternative is that they knew that there was no such evidence. So don't know. But the fact that they pled it narrowly definitely made it an easier case in the sense that we could all at least be pointing at the same target without having to kind of think about and litigate alternative theories of the case. So that part of it, you know, was helpful in that sense. But, you know, I don't know why it is ultimately that they pled it that seemed to me the nature of what was arbitrary and capricious, you know, vis-a-vis the town action was sort of a changing theory by the plaintiff over the course of the case. But that was always the area that they went with. And there's not a lot of case law in this area on the statute, LUIPA, the Religious Land Use and Institutionalized Persons Act. So in that way, it was very interesting to me. There was also another legal issue in the case, which the First Circuit didn't really touch, although the federal court did, which is whether or not there was jurisdiction under the statute to even hear this case in the first place, because it requires some kind of land, the implementation of a land use law. And this is all about the building code, effectively, in the Massachusetts Zoning Act. And I think the federal court properly found that there wasn't jurisdiction. But the 
I, I was thinking, I was curious which way the First Circuit was going to go on that, but they didn't really take that issue up at all. It was really, as you can see in the opinion, just entirely based on the arbitrary and capricious element. Again, this is purely as a casual observer, but you know, in, in researching for today's interview, I was fascinated by the really the brewing tradition of monks and Orthodox Christians. And it seems to me that there's another issue that, again, as a layman, I thought was really interesting in this case. And I, I wonder if it's, it was brought up in the litigation in any context. And that is under the Religious Land Use Act, you know, you've got to show that some zoning law or land use restriction is substantially burdening a religious practice. Here on its face, and this is kind of where I was going with the last question, on its face, this seems to be just, you know, a building code dispute. And anyone who is applying for a building permit in Massachusetts is going to have to jump through these same hoops, you know, whether it's somebody who's building a traditional type restaurant or if it's monks brewing beer for, you know, this banquet hall. But the thing that I was so interested in and wanted to get your thoughts on is, you know, how did that, the sort of intermingling of the monastic brewing tradition come to play in this case? You know, was there any litigation over, you know, whether a zoning restriction or building code law that regulates pretty much everybody in the same way, whether because it would change the use of this fellowship hall actually infringes on a religious practice. And that, that seems to me to be the main point of the religious land use. How did that come up in, in the litigation? Yeah, that's a great question because I think, and this is my own read of it, I could very well be wrong. But I think as a strategy decision early on in the case, plaintiffs were trying to draw us into some kind of dispute as to whether or not the brewing and service of beer for the purpose of evangelizing is some kind of a, a genuine religious practice. Because I read a lot about this early on in the case myself. And it seemed to me the practice was more about wine, although there was certainly a history of brewing beer. And that part of it is fascinating. I mean, absolutely fascinating to have learned about that and uh, to see it actually still happening. It, it was it actually, I really enjoyed that part of the case, being able to kind of understand that better. But it, to me, being drawn into that kind of a debate was, of course, going to be a loser. I mean, it, because I think it was, I don't think there was really a question there. Um, but more than that, who is it for us to question anyhow? So I think that was part of the strategy and maybe the hope on the part of plaintiff to be able to litigate that issue because there was a good amount of history about it in the original complaint is my memory. And certainly something that I would love to have read up on and sort of talked about more, but it really didn't become a core issue in the case from a legal standpoint, but also from the town standpoint, it was never something that they had an issue with. Uh, you know, the very first meetings between the building commissioner and Father Andrew, the protos of the shrine, and you see this reflected in letters from the building commissioner to him, to the to Father Andrew, he's effectively welcoming with open arms, saying, this is great, love your idea, love the brewery, want to be able to help get this off the ground. There was really never at any turn some kind of, you know, 
resistance to having the brewery or the service of beer through the shrine to the, you know, to the public at all. It was simply, hey, look, this is the building code. This is our Bible. And, you know, this is what you need to follow. You know, this is what everyone has to do. So was it an issue? I think it was certainly a looming issue, but it didn't become in any way really a central issue in the case. Craig, how did you guys get involved in this case? So we do work for the town's insurer. And this one came in through Maya, which insures the town, assigning it to us, the defense of the claim. And last question, what's the current state of the Shrines facility up there? That's a great question. So I don't know because I actually haven't been up there or sort of checked on it. But what I have heard is that it's still papered over and there's still work to be done. I don't think that they've opened it up. I had heard that the Shrine had purchased, I believe, the adjacent property next door and was planning on incorporating that into its plans, maybe. But what was interesting about this whole dispute was I remember seeing in communications from Father Andrew to, I think, his architects that the plan was at some point to, after opening up the Fellowship Hall, tear it all down and build an even grander structure on that property. So I think there was even loftier goals for the property, but I don't know what its uh, its current state is. All I know is I still want to try the beer. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. I, I uh, have to say, I, I've heard like to a person that the beer is excellent. So it's on my, it's on my list to well, do. It seems like they've been doing it for, for many centuries. So, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. yeah I'm sure it's the process. <laughs> Greg, thank you so much for joining today and congratulations on such a great victory. Thanks, Bob. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. That's our show. Check out the show notes for more information on today's case. Also, If you are involved in an interesting civil case or know about one that you think would be a good topic for the show, reach out to me at rstetson at bernkofflegal.com. That's rstetson at b-e-r-n-k-o-p-f legal.com. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to this podcast and leave us a positive review. Follow us on Instagram at legaljudgments on Twitter at legal underscore judgments and on LinkedIn at legal judgments podcast. And don't forget that E in judgments.